Hello and welcome to this episode of the ABR Garage, where I am joined by one of the biggest stars of motorcycling on YouTube and creator of some of the most engaging and entertaining bike videos around. It is Ryan from Fort Nine. Welcome to the Garage, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Good stuff. Now, it's about 8 a.m. your time in Vancouver. It's uh, 4 p.m. here in the UK. Um, can you just let us know where you're talking to us from and, and what's your day going to look like today? Yeah, so uh, I'm here in our, our little office. It's in North Vancouver. Um, and what you can see behind me, that would be Luke's desk. He shoots and edits our stuff. Um, and uh, downstairs is where we have our studio, um, bikes and everything that people tend to see in videos. Um, so the rest of today, I'm writing mostly today. Finished a script yesterday, so Luke's going to be doing pre-production on that, um, thinking about how he wants to shoot it. Um, and then we'll meet at the end of the day, talk about the shoot, and then tomorrow we'll be, uh, we'll be off filming that. So uh, most of our days, 50% of them are kind of writing and editing, and we're in here, and then the other 50% are out and about having fun, uh, shooting and riding and all that good stuff. So Busy times, busy times. <laughs> I mean, it never feels that terribly busy because it's all this sort of fun. Um, and Fortnite is like uh, blessedly hands off. They don't particularly care if we get tied up in a project and don't release anything for two months, uh, which is about where we're at right now, actually. <laughs> so, well, that's actually a, a good point to maybe to jump in there for for people that maybe haven't come across you on YouTube, which um, there's probably only a few of them because you've got one point almost one point four million subscribers on there, haven't you? Um, but could you explain uh, to the people in the UK that might not have seen what you're up to, um, what Fort9 is, uh, and am I right in thinking that your parents didn't actually christen you Ryan F9? There's uh, there's another name there as well. That's right, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, Fort9 is an e-commerce company in Canada. Um, we always say we're kind of like the Revzilla of Canada is the easiest way to describe it. Uh, so most people know that for, for you guys would be like the sports bike shop UK, um, of Canada. So we're an online retailer that sells all kinds of motorcycle gear, helmets, jackets, pants, tires, engine parts, whatever. Um, I don't really have anything to do with that side of the company. Um, a, because it's all in Montreal and I don't live there. Um, and B, because they wanted a very hands-off channel from the beginning. They wanted us to have complete creative freedom to say that you know this helmet is a piece of shit or whatever if that's how we feel about it. So, um, uh, we're very uh, very lucky in that sense so what i do is just just the youtube channel for fortnite basically tasked with creating content that we find interesting entertaining or useful uh, to motorcyclists and as long as other motorcyclists sometimes feel that way about our content too then then fortnite is, is very happy so uh, that's that's a yeah basically the gist of, of what we do and I write and present videos and Luke shoots and edits them uh that's it stuff well I'd, I'd like to you know talk about Fort Nine and the success it's been in a moment but if it's okay just to begin with to have a little chat about you because you are the face of Fort Nine and you're an incredibly recognizable face in the motorcycling world these days um so so where did it all begin motorcycling you know often we ask this question and people say their parents their mum their dad is it was it similar for you uh, a little bit yeah my dad rode um so i knew i had a, a slight outside chance of convincing my mother to let me get a motorcycle license <laughs> uh, i started on dirt in elementary school we had this class called library that was like um the teacher would line us all up and march us off to the library. You had to take out a book. That was the rule. But once you had a book, you had like 60 minutes just to kind of stick around and 
uh, hanging with your friends. We figured out very quickly that magazines counted. It was like a bit of a loophole. Um, so you could beeline to the magazine rack, get a trans world motocross, uh, take that out and spend the next 60 minutes flipping through like glossy pages and Travis Pastrana and uh, Ricky Carmichael, Bubba Stewart, the odd Fox and Thor model in a bikini or something. For an eight-year-old, that was like, <laughs> never, you know, that, that we would get to do this on, on school time. So, so me and my buddies all got into like motocross that way before any of us ever had bikes. We we're like eight years old and come to school in like Fox jerseys, uh, even though none of us had ever touched a, a motorcycle. Eventually enough of us pestered our parents that in a group of like 10 friends, there were like five of us that had bikes. Um, so after school every day, we'd go up to the hill behind our house where we had stashed like shovels and rakes that we'd stolen from our parents' sheds um, and carved this like really hack motocross track um, out of a, a sand pit that was like an active quarry. So some days we'd go up there and everything would just be destroyed because they dug out gravel or something we'd have to work again. Um, but we had a little track. We had five bikes that ran the gamut from like an XR80 to like the CR, you know, 252 stroke. Some of us were nine years old. Some of us were 16 and we would go race. It was like the epitome of run what you brung and <laughs> the skill disparity was enormous. But um, that's, that's kind of my background is just like hack garbage motocross. Yeah, sounds like a great environment to grow up as a kid and, and, and learn to love motorbikes, I guess. Perfect, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't ask for anything else. That's it. So uh, did you go from uh, riding in the dirt? Did you, did you go to getting your license and riding in the street as, uh, as, you, as you got a bit older? Yeah, I did. Um, as I said, my dad rode, so we had a, a DRZ400 uh, that was plated. I got a job as a, like a park ranger would be the easiest way to describe it. And so to get to work, I had this 12 kilometer um, uh, forest service road, um, or you could take this 18 kilometer, like single track that was a really gnarly enduro trail that also went up to the top of this mountain. Um, and so I was in the fortunate position where I was destroying the family Camry every day, like trying to <laughs> slug it up the thing. So I said, you know, mom, dad, if I get my motorcycle license, I promise I'll just use it for work. Um, and I can ride dad's DRZ up there and the family car will survive. And, um, so it was like, it was a dream. I got to, you know, I got to ride enduro twice a day, every day on the way to work. Uh, I got to convince my parents to let me uh, have a license. And the ironic thing now is that I still use my motorcycle license for work. So my mom, you know, whenever she brings it up, I say, well, you know, it was true. I, I still do this for work and it's just been a career building thing. So, you know, it was good that you, uh, let me get my license all those years ago. Uh, that's, that's sort of how I got into riding street. And then from there, it was just dominoes, like, you know, uh, got into every bikes, uh, all types of bikes, uh, you know, from, from there. But. There you go. So, so how did you do the transition from, you know, you love riding bikes. It's, it's a passion. It's a hobby. It's your commute to work to going to work in the motorcycle industry. Cause that can be a difficult leap to make can't it. Yeah. I think like a lot of people, I just, ass backwards into it. Um, I was grad at uni in Quebec. Uh, I was doing some like freelance writing for magazines. Uh, I needed to pay the bills and there was just this job open from a company called Canada's Motorcycle that wanted a blogger to create uh, an online blog because at the time that was like the it thing on the internet. Such um, an old fashioned word now, isn't it? Blogger. You don't hear it too often these days. <laughs> Almost hire bloggers anymore. It hurts me a little bit because I'm always like, I'm definitely a written word guy first. Um, and uh, that's where my heart truly lies. But when I started with Canada's Motorcycle, that's what I was doing. I was writing. Uh, and then a little ways in, they decided to rebrand as Fortnite. 
Um, but you don't want to just change your name in the dark one night because the next day no one will find it on Google. You have to build some SEO recognition. Um, so as part of a branding exercise, we launched this YouTube channel called Fortnite, uh, both head of the website switchover. Um, and it was never really supposed to succeed all that much. It was just supposed to, again, gain some, you know, Google recognition and hopefully get some clicks and help for the digital marketing of, of the website. Um, but uh, of course the channel did well. And so we ended up sticking with it. So, but for, yeah, so for me, it was incidental. I was just like the closest thing they had to a video person. Um, and so I just got tasked with this, this YouTube branding exercise. Yeah, no, I, I think I read somewhere um, that you've said in the past, or you've been quoted as saying in the past, that um, it started out, it was quite a, a small operation. Uh, and, and you even did a review once where you didn't actually have the gear there with you because there wasn't the budget for it. Was that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also told the story somewhere. Yeah. It's um, we were very low budget. Um, and I think the idea of the YouTube channel was like an unproven quantity for the bosses that beat. Um, so we said, Hey, can we, you know, buy five helmets to make this review? Cause we knew we wanted to buy everything we reviewed so that we could use it and yeah. uh, abuse it if we had to, and, and say whatever we wanted about it. We didn't want to take freebies from any manufacturers because then you feel obliged to say nice things. So we wanted to buy them. Um, but the bosses said, eh, it's kind of expensive to buy five helmets. So we said, okay, we'll shoot a pilot and we'll just pretend we have the helmets. Um, and we'll just use other objects. So I think we actually had uh, screwdrivers because I had my toolbox there that day. <laughs> so I had a Phillips head and a flat head and a Robertson. And um, we just sort of pretended that those were helmets. And I'm there kind of holding the screwdriver and saying, oh, yes, you know, this uh, whatever bell is, uh, you know, very nice and light and it has this tinted visor. And, you know, I've just got the screwdriver. I've searched for the clip because I've, I've uh, I just wanted to have it for my own kind of laugh. Um, but thus far it's, it seems to be lost, uh, in, in the ether of hard drive somewhere in Montreal. So it may, it may service on the internet somewhere when you least expect it. <laughs> so I'd really like to see it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess it, it was compelling enough that they let us, you know, buy gear for the next one. So yeah, it did the job, good stuff. So, you know, you, you've gone from those early days and, and, and the videos you create now are quite frankly beautiful. They're cinematic. You know, you've got some some wonderful stuff there. But um, did you kind of did you quickly hit the ground running after those first pilots or did it take some time to develop that very distinctive Fortnite style? It, yeah, it, it definitely took time. And it's it's always in flux. Like the videos that we make a year from now will probably be different from the videos we make now. It's a very organic thing. It just depends a lot on what I'm currently reading or watching that I'm interested in and what, and what Luke's currently reading or watching he's interested in. We chat about it, you know, in the office in the morning just for fun. And, you know, that often brings ideas that we can uh, put into videos. So it's changing all the time. Um, I think uh, in early days, one of the reasons I think that it was successful was because I'm somebody who doesn't particularly like gear. Um, most of my stuff is like old, gross the same stuff I've had since 10 years, um, you know, uh, jackets, helmets, whatever. I just get something that works and keep doing it. Um, I'm into gear in the sense that I like the science of it. And I like to kind of try to read through the marketing sort of uh, jargon and, and figure out what's true about a product. I think that comes because when I first started at Fortnite, I was writing a lot of marketing materials, kind of hated it. So now I've got a great distaste for marketing and a distaste for the pseudoscience that manufacturers use to represent their gear. So I kind of hated all that world. And so when we went to film gear reviews, 
it was a bit snarky and it was not very e-commerce-y. Like most e-commerce websites that have gear reviews will be, you know, very positive. They're sort of almost trying to sell you something. Look at this helmet. It's great. Look at this helmet. It's great. Look at these pants. They're great. And this and that. I never particularly liked gear. So I was always, yeah, this helmet's good, but you know, this, this, and this kind of suck. And this helmet I actually really like, but this one is garbage. And um, so our videos were a little more cutting like that. And I think it was just something new on YouTube at the time or newer. So um, they gained, they gained a following pretty quick from that um, to the extent that we were able to hire a really good videographer in Montreal, who was a film student who really loved, um, cinema and so then we said great you're good at that let's you know try to use it and make really cinematic artful beautiful motorcycle reviews um and so we started doing that and that was popular as well but that was just sort of the the luck of finding a guy who who was really into cinema and bikes and and wanted to put the two things together yeah and and that's for me that's one of the things that really really kind of sticks out about Fortnite videos in contrast to an awful lot of great stuff that's out there you know people doing really amazing video stuff is is your it feels like you you really care about the narrative and the storytelling of each piece and then it's layered on top of that with with these just incredible visuals um but but when it comes to that narrative and at the beginning how do you decide what to cover because you know one thing about Fortnite is it doesn't you don't just follow what's on trend or what new bikes out. It seems to be that it, you pick you pick topics sometimes for us out of random, or is there is there method to the madness? <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a, definitely a mix of method and madness. I think often we're not covering the new stuff out of necessity. Um, we work with press fleets and press bikes, uh, you know, when when they're willing, and we're very grateful to receive things from manufacturers, but a lot of the time, we get a press bike, we make a video, they don't like some negative things we've said, and they never give us anything else. Uh, so a lot of the time, we're not covering new bikes simply because we can't get them, um, and so it's our prerogative to go on to, you know, the used market and say, hey, the Suzuki Bergman is actually a really interesting, you know, cult-following scooter, why don't we buy one and, and do justice of that machine there. Um, I studied physics in university, so oftentimes my own personal interest is in the engineering of objects. So, uh, for example, when we made a video with the Yamaha T7, um, I noticed that uh, the sprocket was unusually high and that that angle would uh, change the way the rear tire behaved in terms of anti-squat, and that that was actually very consequential um, for an adventure bike of that size. So I said, great, we're going to make this whole review revolve around this idea of anti-squat. If people watch this seven minute video, I just want them to understand what anti-squat is and why it's cool that the T7 has it. Um, and we'll make the entire narrative uh, approach that peak. That's that, quite I a think, brave approach, isn't it? It's, it's right. very different. It's quite a brave approach to, to something like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is. You're in the magazine world, so you you probably know this better than I, but I always had editors that were like, what's the angle, what's the angle, right? You present them a story that was, you know, beautifully full of ideas and they just want to cut it all away and say, this is your point, like chase this, let's build the story up to this. Um, So I've taken that to video. I try try, try to distill a topic to the one thing that I find really interesting and compelling um, and then build the whole narrative around that. Because usually like I'm I'm an enthusiast, I read and, and, and watch about bikes all the time. And most of the information is just like, oh yeah, yeah, cool, yep, yeah, good to know. And then there's usually, you know, one thing that's like, 
huh, you know, I, I never thought about that before. That's really interesting. So we try to find that thing and then, and then make the video about that. Because there's lots of videos out there that do a great job of covering the information of a topic. Um, and if that's what you're looking for, then those videos are perfect for that. We try to offer something else because if we duplicate something that's successful, it won't be successful because why watch ours when you can just watch this thing that's already out there. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's why we do it the way we do it. Yeah. And you mentioned there that, you know, it, it, you have a big passion for motorcycles, which comes across, uh, um, a little bit like myself, when you're not at work, you're usually reading or talking about motorcycles or, or riding motorcycles. Do you think that, that, that is key to, to the success? You know, do you think you, you would have been as successful if you'd maybe come to this, not really knowing about motorcycles, but, went along with it's, it's a job <laughs> uh that's a very interesting question because i think to some extent that is how i came at it um you know i i was a rider and i've always been into bikes but i wasn't necessarily more interested in motorcycles than i was mountain bikes or skateboarding uh, okay. or literature writing you know I, I had a variety of interests motorcyclists motorcycles happened to be the field where I found a job. And so then I pursued the hell out of it. And now I think the passion I built for motorcycles is much bigger than the other ones in my life. But a lot of that just comes from doing. Um, and, uh, you know, you can learn an incredible amount in your career. Um, occasionally people will say like, you know, how'd you come up with this idea? Or like, how do you know about these things? And it's like, man, I'm paid to sit here for 10 hours a day, like researching motorcycles. Not, it's a luxury that, uh, you know, almost nobody has. So um, anyway, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think to a large extent that the passion's just grown inside of the job. Yeah, yeah. And so looking at your videos, um, so I've watched them for a number of years and I really enjoy them. Um, and I, I, I'm afraid I don't know the timeline because I kind of dip in now out to lots of different ones, but it, it struck me that there's a couple that stick out in my mind. And I wonder if those are ones that that kind of were, a, a bit of a not a, turn, a turning point for you, but made you realize that you'd hit your stride. Or I, I remember the Africa Twin, the CRF 1000L, I think Africa Twin video, and, and the KTM 1090 Adventure video. And I, I remember watching those and thinking, these are so different and they're yeah. so entertaining. And it's so not what I was expecting, you know, from a motorcycle channel. Uh, were they kind of quite prominent moments in Fortnite's development or is there something else that you know really sticks out of we found our style this is us yeah yeah i think you've picked very good ones there for sure i think the africa twin video was a bit of a watershed one for us um mad max had just came out we were all really kicked on it um and so this idea uh that we wanted to do kind of a mad max style video um at the same time we had traveled to Quebec City to shoot a travel video there, met a guy named Jobert, uh, who's an adventure rider, and he told us about this asbestos mine um, in a town called Tring Junction um, that's closed, but all the old asbestos tailings and piles and everything is all still there. And of course, it's very mineral, so the water that collects turns this like electric aqua blue. Um, the dirt tailings themselves are like this weird moon gray because it's all like asbestos. Um, and it created this completely otherworldly, um, alien looking landscape. It's to this day, probably the coolest sort of single place I've ever ridden. Um, and also the most dangerous. I mean, if you're there on a bad day, you're kicking up asbestos dust and, uh, potentially taking years off your life. But if you're there on a wet day and the asbestos mostly stays down, like, 
and it's just the coolest. And it's also the sandbox playground for that community. So there's just motocross and hand, you know, hill climbs and uh, trails all through there. So I think it was a perfect storm. It was the right location. We had, um, you know, recent experience to Mad Max, which I think was the right primer to make that video. Um, and then I think we had an interesting bike in the African Twin at the time. It was a very important and, and new type of adventure bike. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, I think it was, it was a big video for us as well. I'm glad to hear that, that it came across that way for you. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's great stuff. And I think watching those videos, it, I think there is that cinematic element to it that makes it obvious that it's not just you and a GoPro on set. Um, you know, kind of how many people do you have with you? Is there a big crew? Is it run and gun style filming? What, what sort of, you know, what goes into making a video like that, that looks epic? If it were me and a GoPro, the video would be terrible. <laughs> we were chatting about before we sort of started recording here. I'm a huge technophobe. Um, I know nothing about cameras. I know nothing about filming. Um, I don't do any of, any of that stuff. So um, the team is hugely important. Um, and I sort of uh, want to preface it by saying that because it's also extremely small. It's one person um, who shoots and edits our stuff, but he's a wizard with a camera and, and with his editing software. And, he can make something that looks extremely cinematic um, working by himself and with uh, a pretty minimal kit. In the case of the Africa Twin video, we actually had uh, another person there who was driving a vehicle. So we were able to get some uh, sort of side-by-side -side, um, shots, which is quite important because if Luke's hanging out the window with a, a camera, then someone has to be driving the car. So um, sometimes we're, you know, myself and two other people on a shoot, sometimes myself and three other people on a shoot. But 95% of Fortnite videos is just myself and the videographer on a shoot. Um, we find it's uh, very quick to run and gun with a two-man team. You also don't get kicked out of places as much. Um, <laughs> it's one of these weird things where you're not technically allowed to film most places. Um, they tend to be private property or, or city property. You need a permit and insurance and blah, blah, blah. And all those things are prohibitively expensive for YouTube channels. So your best bet is just have a small camera and a small team so you look like tourists and nobody bothers to tell you to get lost. Um, so that's uh, that's been useful for us. Have you ever been kicked out of anywhere? Oh, every shoot almost, yeah. 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 <laughs> the coolest places are all in that fringe area, you know, where you have a feeling we're probably not supposed to be here. Like the asbestos mine train junction, like a company definitely owns that, you know, like someone has graciously gone before you and cut a great big hole in the fence. So <laughs> deniability where you might roll up to it and say, well, there's an opening here and it must be open to the public. Like an entrance. Go on. <laughs> no, it's not true. And and if, if a representative of the company comes around, they're going to say, hey, this is private property, you know better and, you know, take a hike. And then we have to say, oh, yes, you know, very, very sorry. And if we can, we'll try to find the owner because then you can kind of go to them and say, hey, this place is so cool and this would look so great and we're passionate guys and we're trying to make this film and, you know, would it be okay with you if we stayed here and filmed here? And sometimes people say yes, sometimes they still say no because of liability and all yeah. kinds of really comprehensible reasons. And so then it's just, you know, very understandable, you know, sorry, sorry. <laughs> and then, and we get lost. Uh, yeah, it happens almost every shoot. Fair enough, fair enough. So you've gone from, from, riding motocross with your mates, commuting to work, being a copywriter for a bike company to, to being, you know, a hugely influential person in the motorcycling world. Um, you know, the YouTube channel's got, I think it's almost 1.4 million subscribers, isn't it? And, and you're an incredibly 
recognizable face. Um, did you ever think this would happen? Did you ever think you would you would come to this point? <laughs> Definitely not. No, um, it's always uh, surreal and and humbling to you know hear people uh, say stuff like that because it seems. Uh, like it shouldn't be the case. Um, you know, so when, I, when I started at Fort Nine, I didn't have any particular special knowledge about motorcycles. I've kind of built a knowledge through this job, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a pro racer. I'm not a professionally trained mechanic. And so it's kind of weird to be influential in that sense. People talk a lot nowadays about how we're living in the age of the death of expertise, um, how the people that have influence and are listened to are not the most intelligent or knowledgeable people, they're the most entertaining. It's the person who can get online and say sensationalist stuff, be very captivating, be very entertaining. They tend to be the thought leaders rather than the people who actually really know what they're talking about, but maybe they're a boring person, a bookish person, yeah. you know, studies in a lab somewhere or races on a circuit, but really just kind of focuses on themselves. Um, those people are harder to listen to, even though they have better things to say. So we tend to listen to people who for better or worse, can tell a funny joke and speak charismatically on camera. That tends to be where yeah. people. So I think that's the way of the world, and it's also kind of the way of me. It's like <laughs> I'm, really I'm a fake. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not sure whether anyone should be listening to me all that much. But for better or worse, uh, it's it's kind of what happened. And, and that's quite an interesting point that, you, you know, you say that, um, you know, kind of expertise might be dying. And, and uh, a lot of your videos, you go into a lot of detail, a lot of the scientific side of things, you know, with your educational background in, in physics that, that others might not go into. And do you feel a, a sense of responsibility more now than you used to that so many people are watching you and, and so many people do take notice of, of what you say? Does it influence your, your output? Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. Uh, the pressure grows all the time, um, you know, to, yes, produce something entertaining and interesting, but more than anything, accurate, um, factual. Uh, YouTube is brilliant in that you release something and you immediately have 3,000 people's responses to it. If you make a mistake, they will catch it. Um, <laughs> Very quickly. <laughs> hey, this thing you said is completely wrong. You're an idiot. Um, and that's, I think, a good thing because the platform sort of, uh, you know, fact checks itself. Um, and so, yeah, I feel that pressure um, when I'm when I'm doing something, particularly anything that portends to be scientific. I try to work very hard to make it scientific. Um, and if I'm, I'm making statements about the physics of something, I try to make sure that that's uh, rigorous and accurate. Um, that tends to be why I stay in those lanes because it is the thing that I'm at least trained in. Um, so. I am more confident presenting uh, a physics description of something than I am, say, uh, an economic description of something. We've delved briefly into economics. We did a Harley video um, that was largely economically based. The one I wrote yeah, yesterday. Yeah, watched that one, yeah. Um, it's about uh, dealerships and the sort of direct-to-consumer model and how those two things relate and how they might relate uh, in the future. More economical. And those are really stressful for me to write because I didn't study economics, so I have to you know, sort of do double diligence and trying to make sure that the things I'm saying are are good and worthy and and worthwhile uh, because people are going to see them. So, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it comes across very well. And, and something else that also, I think, comes across in your videos and quite handy for me because I, I edit Adventure Bike Rider magazine is that you, you cover a lot of gear, you cover a lot of different bikes, but it does seem to be that adventure biking does hold, is your passion or is probably your... Your, your most favoured form of motorcycling? Perhaps I'm, I'm just reading into it because it's mine. But, um, you know, is that is that an area of biking that you really do love? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I definitely tend towards the dirt. Um, adventure bikes are sort of this happy middle ground where um, they have broad appeal um, to motorcyclists because they're kind of like street bikes, but you, you can off-road on them. Um, so I think we end up in that realm a lot for that reason. If it were just me on my own personal riding time, I'd be more on the dual sport side of the adventure spectrum. Um, I tend to like small, more uh, trail centric dual sports. Um, in my own personal riding, that's the type of thing I do. Um, but uh, for sure on the channel, yeah, lots lots of adventure bikes. And I love adventure bikes too. I, 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 do, I do adventure riding in my own time. And uh, I've got an F800 GS. And, uh, it's definitely something that's close to my heart as well. And in Vancouver, it's the thing to do. This is uh, sort of adventure bike mecca. Um, so it's it's the right type of machine to have around here. Good stuff. And and, and that kind of brings me on to a, a couple of questions. Time that I had in mind, but Canada, you know, it, it's almost a, a, a star of the videos as well, or it's a co-star of the videos. Um, you know, I spent quite a lot of time there myself over the years, uh, and I enjoy tuning in to seeing where you are, even if it's a back lot in Vancouver or if you're off in the woods or the mountains or something, you know, is it, what makes Vancouver, you know, a, a, a wonderful place to be an adventure biker? Or is it, is it really bad and you're just making it look good? No, it's good. It's legitimately very good. Um, I think Canada in general is a great place to be an adventure biker because our cities, um, there aren't very many of them and they're very self-contained. And as soon as you're outside of the city, you're kind of in the wilderness. Um, so Vancouver is very much like that. We have our urban metropolis, but you can go 30 minutes in either direction and be, uh, you know, Brom Peak next to the glacier riding sort of above the tree line. Um, sort of scree stuff, cliff edge roads, like it's all really, really close by. Um, so that I think is one of the reasons why it's great to be an adventure biker here. Um, Vancouver is better than most places in Canada for motorcycling because it hardly snows. Um, like a lot of people here ride year round. Uh, it's very easy to do. There's, you know, maybe two, three weeks that we get snow, but uh, for most of the year, it's, it's great motorcycling weather. That's one of the reasons why I moved from Montreal. Montreal probably my favorite city in Canada but six months of the year you are buried under snow so for someone in my uh in my career it's you know maybe not the best place to be but uh, am I right yeah. in thinking that motorcycles aren't allowed in central Montreal is that is that correct yeah Quebec City um yeah yeah yeah, in Quebec, Quebec yeah. City there are no motorcycles allowed there's no motorcycle signs there's a the main reason for it is the Quebec biker war. Um, uh, something that happened back in uh, maybe late nineties, early two thousands between the hell's angels and some rival gangs. There was a huge amount of violence, um, bunch of assassinations and car bombings and various things. And people okay. kind of their taste for, uh, you know, uh, men on Harleys. Unfortunately, the way, uh, legislature works as they often hit things, you know, with a big hammer that, that should maybe be uh, taken to with a scalpel. So they just nuked the idea of motorcycles in in downtown Quebec. 
I know there were other considerations as well. Quebec City is a neat city. It's an old city. It's a walled city. Um, so uh, within the, the city walls, uh, there's like for lower Quebec, and a lot of those roads are very steep. They're cobblestones. Um, it's probably more like, like a lot of cities in Europe um, and very touristy. So a lot of those roads are pedestrianized anyway. I think loud motorcycles in that part of downtown was not something that a large part of the population was keen on. I'm not sure why I'm justifying it because I completely disagree. Like I hate it. Um, <laughs> Just defending defending Canada. It's okay. It's okay. I understand why perhaps why the decision was made, even even though it's a bad one. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, so you mentioned earlier. You know, you love adventure biking. You love being in the dirt. Um, over here in the UK, uh, and potentially in Europe as well, kind of a lot of adventure biking is done on the road. You know, it's it's pretty well known that if you buy a, a, a 1250 GS or a Multistrada or something like that, the vast majority of people spend their time touring on the road. As well as who I do, I'll probably spend ninety percent of my time on the road. I know earlier on in in Fortnite, uh, Fortnite's life that you did um, various travel stories, particularly out east, wasn't it? I thought they, they were fantastic uh and is it do you do a, a lot of touring yourself sort of just exploring on the road or or is you've left that behind now um i don't do a ton of it to be honest i take a few weeks off every year um and i spend them with my family um so the idea of you know pitching to the wife hey i'm gonna go and you know ride to <laughs> for you know three months is something that doesn't sell very well um so i don't tour long distances much, usually every year I'll do a few, um, you know, and they're brilliant. I went down to um, Pennsylvania for a rally. I went down to uh, Nashville a few years ago, pre-COVID travel hasn't been much of a thing uh, since, but I like doing, doing long touring when I can. But for me, most of my adventure riding, as I've said, is kind of the small dual sport type. I like little bikes where I can toodle to and from work every day on it. And then if I get in early and work hard and I can knock off at like 3 p.m., then I can go and crush trails for a couple hours and still make it. <laughs> that's like my, that's my type of adventure biking. Uh, um, and that's what I spend most of my time doing. I tend not to, you know, pie in the sky, dream and plan about these kind of faraway trips. I just sort of focus on like, where am I riding today at three o'clock? Um, and, uh, and those tend to be, my adventures. The last little pile, actually, there's uh, a, they're I guess building a huge development or something. They put down like um, maybe a square kilometer of just huge sand, like um, preloading, I guess, for for building something. And again, some enterprising person has gone ahead and cut a nice hole in the fence, and it's become this dirt bike playground with just like sort of beach sand, like really. <laughs> So that's been my thing for the last week is just like stopping by there on the way somewhere and um, and sort of practicing scan, uh, sand skills for a while. So all that to say, I adventure ride, but I don't go terribly far. Yeah, no, I love that. I just love the thought of that, of, you know, kind of filming these, these incredible videos and then on your way home, just going through a fence and just ripping up <laughs> with a bunch of local kids or something. It's brilliant. It's great. Yeah. And, we're, and we're, you know, we're kind of the same. We uh, in the UK here, we call it green laning. Uh, and it's riding legal trowels, which are technically roads. You know, there's not many of them, but we we hunt them out. And yeah, after work, we'll all get together and just go and ride a few of those and just, yeah, enjoy blowing off some steam. So it's uh, it's, it's good to do, isn't it? <laughs> I'd love to ride in the UK a bit. I mean, I've seen uh, videos of riding over there. The terrain looks pretty different from what we have in BC, for sure. Um, less trees, more rolling hills, grasslands, things like that. So. Um, it would definitely be a different experience. 
Yeah, we squeeze a lot into a small space. So, you know, you won't go for days on end through remote mildness, but you might have a really nice two or three hours. So <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of my bread and butter. So, you know, that. that's it. And so you mentioned you'd like to uh, to ride in the UK. Have you have you ridden abroad anywhere or is there anywhere in the world that, you know, you, is really on your bucket list? Um, I mean, I know of some epic rides where it's like, if I was in that part of the world with a bike, absolutely, I'd want to do it. Um, you know, I think everyone thinks about, you know, trying to get through the Darien Gap or something like that, um, riding up to Tuk Tuk. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, you know, as I was kind of touching on before, like I don't spend a ton of time thinking about these, um, these big faraway rides. I tend to just focus on, you know, where I'm going today, um, which tends to be sort of nearby stuff. Most of my riding has been in Canada and the States. Um, so, uh, and that's, gosh, I mean, that's pretty amazing place to ride. <laughs> <laughs> in the States, the States is so heterogeneous. It's like really cool. Um, you know, Washington and Oregon is so different from Idaho and Utah, which is so different from Arizona and Nevada, and, you know, down in the Southern California, it's like, you don't have to ride very far and the environment changes a whole lot, um, which is really, really cool. In Canada, I love Canada and it's very wild, but man, you got to ride a really long distance before you start to see it like a change in terrain. Yeah. Uh, everything is terribly far apart. And if you go north, it's just tundra for like four days, like nothing changes. It's just, boom, you know, uh, sort of flatline tundra, which is gorgeous and really cool, but, um, you know, not as heterogeneous as the States is. I have to admit, to an Englishman, there's, there's something very appealing about crossing Canada and not seeing the landscape change, particularly from one yeah. day to the next to the next. There's, there's. Uh, I, I hope I wouldn't get bored. I'd hope I'd just be in a meditative state and enjoy riding in a straight line. But, but who knows? I don't know. I've never done it. <laughs> yeah, I've done the cross Canada trip, and yeah? it, I highly recommend it. Like one of, uh, um, probably one of the the coolest trips that. I've ever done. When you've come to Canada, where have you been? I mean, you mentioned that you've been out here a few times. Yeah. So I, I used to spend my childhood uh, with an aunt, like many, like many English people, we have relatives in Canada. I used to, uh, in Ontario, just north of Toronto, and uh, uh, just outside Belleville, uh, oh, yeah. cottage country, basically. On, on an Aunt and uncle lived on a lake there. So I used to spend my, my summers fishing and swimming and riding a quad bike and canoeing and, and, and doing all those things that I didn't do back in England and, uh, and loving every second of it. And uh, yeah, spent a bit of time, uh, spent a few months living in Banff in Alberta. Oh, yeah. Explored uh, BC and Vancouver and Vancouver Island and things like that on a backpacking year. And yeah, I love Canada. Took my wife there for the first time a couple of years ago before everything went crazy and she fell in love with it as well. Thank God. So uh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we get back as often as we can because it's, it is a wonderful place to be, but I've never ridden there. I've never ridden a motorbike there. So I want to, I'm desperate to. You come by Vancouver, I can put you on a flight and uh, <laughs> go somewhere. Good stuff. Um, you mentioned a bit earlier your uh, your BMW F800 GS. We, we, we see that in a lot of videos. Um, one of my favourite videos of, of yours or your teams was your review of it when you started. This is not a bike review, uh, yeah. which was which, which was great. You know, can you just sort of tell us a little bit why why that bike? Because from you know from the outsider's perspective, you might have your your choice of or your, of any bike, or or is that not the case? It's just the right bike at the right time. Um. Yeah, I mean, at the time it was the right bike. It was, you know, uh, the thing I wanted most. I've always loved the F800 GSA. Well, I love the F800 platform because to me, that's um, right where an adventure bike should be. 
um, because I find myself too limited on the bigger ones. Um, I'm not a talented enough rider to really crush trails on a 1250 GS much as uh, I want to and love to when I'm doing it, you know, you get yourself in a tight spot and suddenly you have to lift 600 pounds. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so to me, that 800 was just always sort of perfect because it'll happily cruise at 130, um, which is what you want on the Trans Canada. Like it's a big, long road. You really want to be able to do 130 comfortably. Um, but it's still light enough that, um, you know, you can thrash the thing off road. A little bit and then the gsa which is the spec i have has the bigger tank um the range on the thing is like ridiculous um when you fill that tank up it'll just go forever until you have to fill it again um so to me it's like at least at the time it was the perfect adventure bike um now i think it's become a dinosaur like yeah. that 800 class has really been usurped by your t7s your ktm 790s which are much smaller and lighter but have the same horsepower um, you know, the T7, I spent quite a while on that bike. It's as comfortable, uh, and capable on the highway as my F800 GSA is, but it's way lighter and it feels much more like a dirt bike. And I'm way less stressed riding it into tricky off-road situations because I know if I get myself in a pickle, I can pick the thing up and get back out. Um, I mean, not literally, but it's pretty easy to, to, to move around in there. Um, and you'll just roll up to things you'd never roll up to on the F800 GSA. Um, when we were filming with the T7, there was this kind of dirt bikey hill climb and we were sort of laughing about it, like, haha, it'd be fun to go up there. But after riding the T7 for a bit, I was like, you know what, this thing could go up there. Like we could do, <laughs> um, whereas on the F800, I just never try it. Cause it feels so much more like a street bike, um, even though they're the same capacity. So I think the adventure bike has evolved. The F800 GSA is not, um, something that I think makes a ton of sense anymore. Um, but it's still a phenomenal bike and it's my bike and I love it. And now I'm kind of, uh, kind of attached to the thing. Is there a bike out there that kind of money, no objects, uh, there's a space in your garage for it. Your wife's happy for you to spend the money on it. Um, that, you know, you, you see, and you think, yeah, I'd love to get my hands on one of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's many, um, I, it's a miracle. I don't have a garage full of 10 bikes. Cause if I had the money, I probably would. Um, you know, if I could make the F800 GS disappear, yeah, I'd probably put a T7 in my garage right now. Yeah. Uh, but I know that the hit I'd take on the F800 GS is enormous because it's been a very abused bike. Um, and I feel like I have some responsibility for it now, so maybe I won't sell it. Um, if I were to add something to the garage, Ooh, yeah, that's a tough one. We just did a video on an Alta uh, Redshift MX, the electric motocrosser. Oh, yeah. I fell in love with that thing. That's an incredible bike. Um, so I think if money were no object, I'd probably try to get my hands on an Alta Redshift EXR, which is the one with a license plate and indicators and a headlight. Yeah. Um, me, that would just be the coolest because I could tootle to and from work on it and then go and ride motocross like it's it's a, a very competent motocross or enduro uh race bike so um that uh that would be near the top of my list but yeah there's gosh there's so much stuff yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of old bikes like i tend to buy and sell a lot of old bikes i tend to be interested more in those than than the new ones so um i've always wanted an xr 650r i've always wanted an xr 400 grandfathered icbc um the uh way insurance works here they changed the rules a few years ago where now unless the bike left the factory as street legal you have no chance of making a bike street legal oh, um, 
didn't always used to be that way. So I think pre 2010 ish, if you had a dirt bike and you put a headlight and indicators on it, you could get a plate um, and ride it like a dual sport. And when they changed the rule, they didn't go back and, you know, pick plates off of the bikes that already had them. So every once in a while, you'll get a cool old, um, you know, XR 400 or WR 450 or, you know, like a dirt, dirt bike um, that runs around with a plate still, because when you go to quietly change the title, the person behind the desk doesn't really know motorcycles and they just let it keep happening. Uh, so every time one of those pops up, I'm extremely tempted um, <laughs> to, to, to grab it and have a little piece of uh, unobtainium. So that would be high on the list. Yeah, I don't know. What else? Yeah, uh, lots of stuff. <laughs> too much choice, too much choice. Right, yeah. I, I could sit here and ask you questions about Fortnite and your life and bikes uh, all day, but I know it's almost the start of the working day there or uh, coming out to about nine o'clock in Canada. So I will let you go and script and create and, and publish some, you know, more great content because I really enjoy it. I know, you know, lots of people here in the UK do. So, you know, please do keep up, keep up that work. Cause it's uh it's great, great to watch. It's great viewing. Yeah. Much appreciated. It was fun chatting with you, James. And, uh, you know, anytime, hopefully we can uh, arrive in the same country at some time in the future and, uh, and meet in person. Excellent. Good stuff. Thanks for joining us. Take care.